Good morning, my name is Sarah Jackson, and the Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 through 4. The Lord God's Spirit is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for captives and liberation for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vindication for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for Zion's mourners, to give them a crown in place of ashes, oil of joy in place of mourning, and a mantle of praise in place of discouragement. They will be called oaks of righteousness, planted by the Lord to glorify himself. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore formerly deserted places. They will renew ruined cities, places deserted in generations past. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Jill. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 6, 1 through 4. So what are we going to say? Should we continue sinning so grace will multiply? Absolutely not. All of us died to sin, and how can we still live in it? Or don't you know that all who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried together with him through baptism into his death, So that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too can walk in the newness of life. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Diana. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in Luke 1, verses 74 through 79 that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, The dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, kind, kind, loving, and good God, thank you for gathering us together, for bringing us into your family and for doing all the work that you do to invite us and welcome us to yourself. And as we gather today, we pray that you would open our minds to understand your scriptures, and that you would do a work inside of our hearts in changing us and transforming us and helping us to live in light of the gospel. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. 
And this weekend actually marks eight months since uh, my wife Sarah and my three kids and I moved from Tulsa, Oklahoma here to the beautiful place of Colorado Springs uh, to join the team here at New Life Downtown. Uh, And it has been an absolutely fantastic, uh, thank you. We, we have absolutely loved living in this city and being a part of this community. But as you know, with every relocation, it's likely that all of us have relocated at some point in our lives. With every lo- relocation, there comes a transition. You move to a place to begin to live there, but then you have to learn actually how to live there, how to live in that space. And so you move, but then you have to figure out all of these new things, like new doctors and new schools and new street signs and why this street is one name here and a different name here, and they combine and they go this way, and you know, then you get turned around a cliff somewhere and you don't know where you end up. And you have to you know, kind of figure out streets and how you get to and from work. You've got to find a new home in this real estate climate that takes a while. And you know, there's all of this newness. But then you're also adjusting to a new culture, right? There's a sense that every time you move, there's a new culture that you find yourself a part of. There's a lot more outdoor life in Colorado than there is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I think that has to do with the absence of humidity and mosquitoes. Those things, you just make it like, and then you add Pike's Peak to it, and you go, why do I not want to be outside? Uh, But then you have to adjust to the elevation. (laughs) Like, why am I so tired? (laughs) I'm just walking. I'm not doing anything strenuous. So you're adjusting in all of those ways. And then, of course, you're discovering important things like Josh and John's ice cream, uh, you know, or whatever it is that you're discovering that's new. So there's this entire transition of things that you go through every time you relocate. But we know that not all relocations are the same and not all transitions are the same either. Not all relocations are easy. Not all of them go really well. Not all transitions are smooth. This is the third major relocation that Sarah and I have gone through since we were been married. The first one was we moved from Tulsa the first time to go to seminary in Kentucky. And moving can kind of from all of our support systems and structures and the church that we were a part of for an extended period of time and moving from, you know, the 1,700 square foot house to a 400 foot apartment. Uh, And that was if you measured the outside walls, Uh, just tiny space. And it sort of kicked us off into what really was the hardest year and a half of our marriage walking through that transition. Then we moved back to Tulsa. Sarah was eight months pregnant. So in the span of three weeks, we had a new house, a new job, a new church, and a new baby, uh, which made that transition so fun. (laughs) Um, So it had its own challenge. And there's other uh, transitions that are just really welcomed. Uh, We find ourselves sometimes relocating because we're forced to Uh, And other times, because we feel like we've been invited into something, and we're excited, and there's a welcomed kind of relocation. That's what really this has been for us. It was a a welcomed relocation from one kind of space we found ourselves in to another. And the scriptures actually describe salvation over and over again as a welcomed relocation. Uh, This is kind of the picture of salvation. And all throughout, they start pulling on these different metaphors to try to explain what happens to us in and through Jesus. Because not one metaphor will do. We have to look at it from all of these various places and angles to be able to see what it is that God's doing us. So there's this, this relocation that's described physically, where we move from old creation to new creation. 
from this heaven and earth to the heaven and earth that are coming that will be renewed where everything is set right. That's kind of that big picture of salvation. But there's also this idea of family relocation, that we move from one family into this family of God that were adopted as God's sons and daughters and part of his family together. There's agricultural relocation that Paul talks about being a wild branch somewhere that's then moved and relocated into a deeply established and healthy roots and being connected in that capacity. Uh, There's all of these images, but probably the most common one that we often, I think, miss in the scriptures is actually talking about salvation as a political relocation, about moving from one kingdom, one power, one reign, one authority, one master to a whole nether, that we've been rescued and moved from one political power, from one authority system and structure into another. And that's actually the dominant metaphor that we find in Romans chapter 6, the passage that we're looking at today. So we've been in the middle of this series through the book of Romans. This is our sixth week, and what's going to take us all the way up until Advent as we walk through this book together. We'll spend two weeks in chapter 8 and kind of combine 9, 10, and 11 together. Otherwise, we're kind of walking through the book chapter by chapter. And last week, Pastor Glenn and helped us look at uh, Romans chapter 5 and seeing the way that Paul talks about this idea of grace. Now, what is grace and how is it that grace actually works in our lives? What is it that grace actually does? And we know kind of on a broad level that it's God's grace that saves us. There's a salvation aspect of grace, that this is what it is that God's grace does. But we went on and talked about it even more in saying that grace is actually the word gift in, in Greek. And so this idea, though, is, is it's not a gift with no strings attached, but it's actually a gift that creates. It's a gift that does something. And so Glenn talked with us about how grace actually creates for us a new status. That because of God's grace, when we have faith in Jesus, we access this grace, and all of a sudden what happens in us is that we're made right with God. And also grace creates a new relationship that rather than being enemies with God, we now become at peace with God as his adopted sons and daughters. That this is what grace does. And then he ended talking about how grace creates new possibilities. That grace actually fills us with the power of the Holy Spirit and creates inside of us a hope for a changed kind of life. That there's now these possibilities that open up for us because of what God has done in and through the person of Jesus. And then Paul, at the end of this chapter, ends with this idea that says that God's grace then is greater than sin. That God's grace is greater than sin. So much so that whenever sin increases, grace multiplies even more so there's no way sin can catch up. It's greater than, it's even more than, and multiple times more than. So what the idea in that is, is that God's grace is greater than your sin. That whatever it is that we've done, whatever we find ourselves in, whatever has either happened to us or that we've done to others, God's grace is always greater than that and multiple times more, and therefore there is hope for us. Because sin doesn't have the final say, but God's grace does. 
in your life, and grace creates this new possibility. And even if sin were to increase, grace will increase even more, that it's greater than our individual rebellion and our corporate collective rebellion as humanity, that God's grace is greater. After he establishes that, though, then he goes and he asks this very, very kind of odd question. He starts Romans 6 and he says, so what should we say? Should we continue sinning so that grace will multiply? And the idea is this, is like, well, if grace is so good and grace increases, multiplies even more than sin, shouldn't I multiply sin so that grace will multiply even more than that? Shouldn't I keep on sinning so that God can keep giving and I can keep receiving grace? This is the idea, and it seems a little bit odd to us that he would present this kind of idea, but Paul emphatically says no, and the reason why is sometimes we have a kind of a misguided idea of sin, that we typically think of sin solely as an action and grace as God's reaction, right? So we do something, we say something, you know, we lose our temper in traffic, um, we, you know, violate a rule or a law that we know that we shouldn't violate, we look at something on the computer that we shouldn't look at, we think a thought that we shouldn't think, we lie in some capacity, we hurt someone, this is an action that we do, and God's reaction to that is grace. And His grace is greater. So if I keep doing this, I'll get more grace, and grace will increase, and actually God will get more glory because he's, His salvation has come into an even greater sinner. But if I just go further and deeper and darker, then look how much better God's grace is and multiply that. It's a little bit like the idea of negative attention. If you're familiar with that idea, this idea that if we keep doing negative things, we'll get the attention that we seek. When I was a uh, youth pastor, that was kind of my first round of ministry, uh, was working with students. Uh, And particularly when I first started, I was working just with junior high kids. Uh, And there's a deep unkindness to junior high life. Um, I mean, it's just an unkind season that I never want to revisit, uh, either junior high or high, or high school, to be honest with you. Uh, but there's a deep unkindness kind of within that. And for some, it's even greater than others. And there was a student inside of our student ministry who happened to hit maturity, um, puberty, way before everybody else. Um, so here he is in this junior high ministry, and there's lots of, you know, kind of other guys that are, you know, four foot, five inches tall or whatever, and he's like six nine, Not quite that big, but I mean, he just towered above everybody else. He looked like a junior in high school when he was in seventh grade. I mean, he just had grown so quickly. And for a lot of junior high kids, this is awesome, right? You get facial hair before everybody, and you dominate on the basketball court. Like, this is huge. But for him, he didn't get any sort of athletic prowess with it. (laughs) He was kind of awkward and clumsy and really kind of loved video games and comic books. So his size didn't really help him kind of in that capacity, but actually made life more difficult. And so I remember having these conversations with him where every single Friday night when we were doing student ministry at the time, he'd come up to me and he'd want to talk to me about these really violent movies and violent video games and violent songs that he was listening to. Like everything was filled with all of this hate and violence and anger. And he just kept watching and kept watching and kept reading and kept listening. So all this stuff was just saturated with this. 
And every single Friday, I would tell you, like, man, you know, like, it's not good to kind of just continue to immerse yourself in that and those kinds of images and language and those kinds of things, but to actually think about things that are good and right and true and beautiful. And then the next week, you come back and have the same conversation again. And the week after, the same conversation again. And the week after, the same conversation again. And I remember one friend, I was so frustrated. I was like, God, I do not know what to do. I don't know how to help him. I've said everything that I know to say. Every, like, wise, like, youth ministry pastor thing that I can possibly come up with, I've tried, and it doesn't seem to work. And I felt like the Lord said to me, stop talking to him about it. Like, what? Why would I do that? That seems to be counterproductive. This guy needs help. Why would I stop talking to him? But I tried it anyway. So, you know, first week comes to me and he starts talking about, I think it was Natural Born Killers or some movie along these lines. And he starts talking to me about it. And I said, man, I love you. We're not talking about that anymore. You know what I have to say. I really don't have anything else to say on the subject. You know exactly how I feel. Next week, same thing. Next week, same thing. Next week, same thing. This went on for weeks. And then all of a sudden he comes to me one week and he goes, okay, so I have this question about the Bible. And all of a sudden the conversation changed. See, what he really wanted to know was, is he loved? Is he, is he going to have attention? And he was willing to do anything to continue that conversation and to get attention. And sometimes we think the same thing about God. We think that God's attention on us is greater when we are in trouble when we were in crisis. And so I'm going to keep putting ourselves in those places so that God's attention will be on us or maybe the community of God's people will be on us and we'll experience more grace. This is the kind of understanding that Paul is trying to address in the middle of this. And it comes out of this idea that sin is just something that we do and, God, and grace is God's reaction. But in Romans, sin and grace are actually opposing powers. They are opposing powers of which grace is always stronger. So the idea is as sin's power increases, its power is never greater than the power of God's grace. So even if the power of sin increases, the power of God's grace is multiple times more powerful. So whatever it is that we've done or committed or cycles we found ourselves in, places that we felt trapped or overwhelmed, darkness that we've experienced in our lives or find ourselves continuing to experience, what Paul says is that the power of God's grace is greater than the power of that thing in your life. The power of God's grace is greater than the power of sin in your life. And he goes on to say is actually that sin is not just something that we do, but sin is a power that we were under. That he describes our life before Christ as being under the power of sin. And he goes on and he talks about sin as a master, as a lord in some way that actually enslaves us and demands our allegiance, presses our bodies into its service, so that sin plays itself out in our bodies, and eventually it kills us. That this is what sin does, is that sin exercises itself. It sort of exerts its force. The weapon that it yields is death. That this is what sin does, is it pushes us toward death and brings death in our lives. Death is actually how sin achieves what it desires. That that's its ultimate goal. The power that exerts 
presses to death. That's the desired outcome. But here's the idea that comes along with that, is that then when someone dies, sin no longer has any power. You can't kill someone who's already died. That when, that when sin achieves its goal, when it accomplishes its goal, it's actually reached its limits. That its power does not extend beyond that. So Paul goes on to say that because of that, sin's power ended when Jesus died. It no longer has power because when Jesus died, we died as well. And therefore, sin has lost its authority in our life. That we no longer live under its regime. It is no longer the operating government for our lives. But instead, we live in God's kingdom and under the reign of grace. We have been relocated from one power into another. This is what grace has done, has brought us out from under the power of sin into the power and the reign of grace. And so there's this idea that causes Paul to say this then. So should we keep on sinning? He says, no, absolutely not. Then all of us died to sin. So how can we still live in it? Notice he doesn't say, so how we can still do it. He says, actually live in it as if it is a power. He says, don't you know that all who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried together with him through baptism into his death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too can walk in the newness of life. See, what Paul does is he actually pulls on the symbol of baptism to be able to talk about this transition, to talk about the transition that we have experienced in and through the grace of Jesus Christ, that we were actually buried with him And as we go under the water and raised with him coming out of the water into a newness of life. But the image is simply this, that grace joins us to Jesus. Grace joins our lives to the life of Jesus. This is what it does. It joins us to him. So N.T. Wright says it this way. So we've been joined with Jesus. Therefore, what is true of him is also true of us. That what Jesus has gone through, we've been joined with him, and so we have gone through that as well. So Jesus died, and when Jesus died, sin lost its authority, but being joined to Jesus, we died as well. So sin has lost its authority. And just as Jesus was raised again, we too have been raised again. So there's a sense that his history is actually our current reality and our future destiny that there's a resurrection power at work in our lives now as we wait for the resurrection to come. We can walk in newness of life here and now while we wait for the ultimate renewal of life when Jesus comes again in final victory and absolutely wipes out all evidence of sin and death's existence. And we're given new bodies. We live in this new creation. So as Jesus died, so so did we. As he was raised, so did we. So there's a sense of both a resurrected present and a resurrected eternity. This is constantly Paul's anchor points for talking about salvation. 
And when Paul talks about the work that God's doing inside of us, he talks about a resurrected present and a resurrected eternity. He talks about being joined to Jesus in such a way that we can live a different kind of life now and experience a different kind of life later. This doesn't mean suddenly that everything in our life suddenly goes well. That there's this moment where all of a sudden all of the circumstances in our life have changed. Not by any means, but instead something has changed that allows us to live differently in the midst of our present circumstances and situations. The kind of the clearest picture of the first time I got a glimpse of this was when I met Christ in high school and in the midst of all of my life falling apart, everything that I knew to be true, my parents were getting divorced and several other things were happening, and my neighbor opened up a Bible and told me about Jesus. And I remember walking from his house back to my house, and I was walking back into a mess. Things were not well. My parents were still getting divorced. My mom was a wreck. My brother was a wreck. I was a wreck in some capacity, right? And I remember walking back and singing the first line of Amazing Grace and somehow experiencing joy and hope and peace in the midst of an absolutely dark and devastating circumstance. Like that's the promise that we begin to experience a new life in the midst of all that is happening within the world. So he goes on and he actually presents this idea that not only does grace join us to Jesus, but grace then liberates us from the power of sin. It liberates us. Kind of underneath the surface of all of this, Paul is kind of continually referencing back to the paradigm of salvation in the Old Testament, which is the Exodus. It says, we have been liberated, that Jesus actually enacts a second Exodus. So the idea of the Exodus, of course, that Israel was enslaved in Egypt under the reign of Pharaoh, slaved, uh, enslaved and forced into heavy labor to build cities for Pharaoh. And they're inside of this existence. They cry out, and God hears them, and God sends Moses, and he delivers them, and he takes them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He brings them to Sinai and says, I am your God who has freed you from Pharaoh, freed you from Egypt, brought you to myself, and I'm going to take you into this new land, the land that I promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he's bringing us out of one power into another. And this is the continual image that is within it. Even the image of baptism is kind of like going through the Red Sea. So Paul presents sin as humanity's Pharaoh. That sin has actually enslaved us. That this is what sin has done. If you remember back when we were talking about Romans chapter 3, Glenn describes sin as like an infection. It's a virus or a cancer that takes over our bodies and its end goal is to kill us, right? That is the goal. Sin sort of works itself the same way, works into our body and spreads and tries to bring us to the point of death. But like cancer, oftentimes the way that you kill cancer is you kill the body before it does, right? And sort of stop it in its tracks. And then there's no longer a place for it to exert its influence as you do something like kill the immune system and then see uh, what happens as we get like a, trans, uh, a bone marrow transfer or something along those lines. So this is the idea of what Jesus did is that to defeat sin, Jesus actually died to it. He died under its power. But when God raised him from the dead, sin actually lost its clout and lost its claim on us. The grace has liberated us 
It's lost its claim on our lives and lost its power over us. We've been rescued. So we've not only been joined with Jesus, but we journeyed with him in that exodus on the cross to the grave and out the other side. Joined with Jesus and rescued with him. So when we died with Jesus, we, we also are raised with Jesus. So the idea is we're no longer under the power of sin. We've been transferred, so we're under the reign of grace. So that leads to this huge question, though. If that's true, if we have been set free from the power of sin, then why do we still sin? Why is it that we still do stuff that we know that we shouldn't do? Why do we still find ourselves struggling with things that we struggled with even before we met Jesus? Why do we find ourselves struggling with various things in our lives and find ourselves repeating destructive behaviors and habits and actions in our lives? And Paul begins to address this. He says this. He says, so then, don't let sin rule your body so that you do what it wants. Don't offer parts of your body to sin to be used as weapons to do wrong. Instead, present yourselves to God as people who've been brought back, to life, brought back to life from the dead and offer all the parts of your body to God to be used as weapons to do right. See, what Paul says is that we've actually been set free, that sin has no power over us anymore. So then he goes on to say, so don't give it any. Don't give sin power it no longer has. Don't live like sin's still in charge. That's what happens, is that when we sin, we give sin power it no longer has. That we've been rescued, we've been set free, but we've been brought to the other side, and yet we still tend to give sin power that it no longer has in our lives. At one point, we involuntarily were enslaved, and now we voluntarily go back. So the idea, I think the picture sometimes we can think about is the idea of the exodus to go back to that image. Imagine being an Israelite and your whole life has been about building bricks for Pharaoh. That this is your entire value, your entire life, your entire existence. You get up at the break of day and you build bricks until you can't build bricks any longer. And then you crash at the end of the night, exhausted, only to be forced or up early again in the morning to make more bricks. And your whole life and your whole value, your whole existence is on brick making. That this is all you've ever known. This is all you've ever even known yourself to be. And all of a sudden, the God of the universe reveals himself and delivers you and brings you out of Egypt. You cross through the Red Sea. You see Pharaoh's army drowned behind you. And you go and you're standing on the other side of the sea. And you go to sleep at night. And you wake up at dawn the next morning to start building bricks for Pharaoh been rescued, we fall back into the same patterns because that's all we've ever known. Or imagine if you think about the idea of being in prison or being captured in some capacity. Maybe for those of you who've seen like the movie Shawshank Redemption or a movie a couple years ago, Room with Brie Larson, this idea of being captured and living inside of this small space for so long that this becomes the entire way that you understand yourself and understand your entire life. You have no concept for who you are outside of this prison, but you've been set free. 
And now you're trying to figure out how to live a new life in a new way because you've been rescued from that capacity. See, oftentimes it takes us a long time to remember who we are, to recover our identity and to understand ourselves as the sons and daughters of God, to rebuild our lives and to relearn how to live. We have habits and patterns that have been formed and shaped under the old regime, and now they have to be reshaped under the reign of God's grace in our lives. We revert back to old ways of doing things. In some way, it's a little bit like Stockholm Syndrome, where we develop almost an affinity or an affection or a, familiar, a familiarity with our captor, with living life in that kind of way. And so even when we've been set free, there's something about that that causes our heads to turn. And what Paul says is when we do that, we're actually presenting ourselves back to that power for that power to have influence. But he says, no, 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 no. Instead of doing that turn and experience the fullness of life that God has for you because he set you free and allow the reign of his grace to take over and begin to teach us an entirely new way to live. He says, instead of presenting ourselves to sin, instead of giving it power it no longer has, he tells us to present ourselves to God so we can fully realize who we are and who he is and the newness of life that he has brought to us. See, grace actually empowers us to live a new life under a new Lord. That this is what grace does. Grace doesn't simply relocate us and leave us and say, okay, have a good time. But grace actually stays with us in and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and reorients us and helps us transition to our new surroundings. Help us to learn what it means to live as the sons and daughters of the great high king of the universe. How to live in his kingdom here and now. Teaches us to live life under a different kind of power and a different king. This is actually what discipleship is all about. Discipleship is that process of recognizing that we've been relocated. Now we're transitioning. Now we're learning how to live according to our new identity. We're learning how to live in this new space that God has brought us in. We're learning how to live consistently with what it is that God has done. We're learning this new way of life. So there's this uh, clear picture that we see in the Old Testament that even after Israel was rescued, they hadn't arrived yet right? He brought them out of Egypt, but there still was a journey for them to go on. You may have heard it said at various points by people that first thing that God had to do was get Israel out of Egypt, and then the second thing he had to do was get Egypt out of Israel. The same is true for us. He rescues us from the power of sin, gets us out from under its dominion, and then he begins very gently and very graciously and very lovingly to begin to work those habits and patterns out of us so that we can learn how to embrace the fullness of what it is that God has, to learn what it means to actually live a new kind of life here and now that looks like the life that is to come. It's a sense that we've been set free. And so Hebrews talks about it this way. He says, so cast off the sin that so easily entangles. The shackles have been unlocked, but oftentimes it takes a while to shake it off. Right? 
And that's what this process of formation or discipleship looks like, is learning how to shake off the shackles so that we can really run free in the open and gracious world that God has given to us. And we all know a little bit of what that's like. We've all experienced some kind of transition in our life where there was something new that was true, but we also had to learn how to live like it was true, right? So it may have been in your workspace that there was a company takeover, a new boss, or a new system or authority structure, and you had to learn what it meant to live inside of that. Or maybe for those of us who are married, recognize that there's a point where you stand in front of people and you make these vows, and all of a sudden you're married and you walk down this aisle together, and you're one, but you have to learn what it means to actually live that way. Right? It's not immediately that you understand the movement from thinking about life in terms of me, myself, and mine to thinking about life as ours. What does our life together now look like? It takes us a while to grow up into that. Or the idea for those of us who are parents in the room. You know, there's this really strange thing that happens. You have this child, and you spend three days in the hospital where all these professionals taking care of your kid right? Doctors and nurses sort of around the clock, you get a little bit of sleep, people bring you food. doesn't taste good, but at least somebody else is cooking it. And you have all of this stuff, you're like, you're a parent, but that reality doesn't actually hit until you realize, oh, they're sending this child home with me. (laughs) And the doctors and the nurses and the, you know, beds, and none of that's coming with. And I didn't get a master's degree Like, surely there's some sort of certificate or training I have to go through before they're going to send this kid home with me. But instead, you realize, I remember, you know, kind of strapping our oldest Cora into that car seat and walking out of the room and going, oh, like this, like, parent thing is real now. (laughs) And learning how to be a parent. You became one, but now learning how to do that. So we've all experienced those kinds of transitions in our lives uh, Paul is saying here is that is not unlike the transitions happen for us. Grace has relocated us. It's liberated us. But now it's empowering us to live a new way of life under a new Lord. And he goes on and says it this way. In Romans chapter 6, verse 22, he says, But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, Went from being slaves to sin to slaves for God. Bob Dylan says, you know, got to serve somebody. Uh, so we're moving from one structure to another, from one Lord to another. And it says this, is you now have the consequence of a holy life. And the outcome is eternal life. The wages that sin pays are death, but God's gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word consequence there in the Greek is actually the word karpon. It's the word fruit. So this is the fruit of what's happened. The fruit is holiness. The fruit is actually becoming like Jesus in our lives. Becoming a new kind of people who live a new life under a new Lord. And oftentimes when we encounter these places of sin in our life, what we believe in our minds that we have to do is that we believe that we have to try harder, right? We have to strive to get over that. What Paul is saying is that what you're doing is you're presenting yourself here. What you need to do is present yourself here. Present yourself to God, and here's what happens. He actually makes you like Jesus, 
See, the analogy he uses is the idea of fruit. What happens for fruit when it's growing on a tree or on a vine is that the, the branch that, that fruit is on, that branch isn't saying, oh, I just got to try harder to get what I need to from the vine. I got to try harder to get what I need to from the trunk. If I just do this, if I just do this, if I just suck the sap a little harder, then I'll get everything I need and then my life will be different. Then my life will be changed. And we have this idea that the way that we overcome sin is through our own striving. But the fruit analogy reminds us of this, is it's not the branch that is trying to suck the life out of the vine, but it's the vine that's pushing its life into the branch. And if this is what God does, he says, hey, come to me so that I can infuse my life into you, so that I can show you and teach you who I am, and I can show you a new way to live, and that overcoming that old way of life doesn't happen by trying harder, but it actually comes just from being with me. And in being with me, all of those old ways of thinking and doing and living, I'll gradually push them out, reveal them as we go along, as we walk step by step, side by side together, and I will actually infuse my life into you. So the way of the Christian life is not by trying to get or take all it is that we can from God, but it's about being simply presenting ourselves so we can receive all that it is that God has to offer. And it's in that we find newness of life breaking out in the presence. It's in that that we find our great hope, that no matter where it is that we find ourselves, no matter what we find ourselves struggling with or encountering or dealing with over and over and over and over and over again, God's grace is greater. He joins us to Jesus. He liberates us from sin. And then he teaches and empowers us how to live a new way, not through our own effort, but through his grace, infusing the very life of Jesus in us. And he says, come to me and receive it. Open-handed, come and let me impart all that I am to you. And we do that every week here at the table. We come open-handed to receive the very life of Jesus into us and knowing that Jesus is the one who changes us and transforms us. It teaches us to live outside of the power of sin and open into this new way of life that as we continue to receive his life into ours, that our life begins to look more like his. And suddenly, we experience the fullness of all that God has to offer. And we're just even glimpsing it, because that's only a piece of what's to come, as he comes finally and sets us free from all of it. Amen? Now let's pray together.